Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with Martin Willis moving and shaking. Martin moving and shaking Willis. That's how I'm supposed to say it. Oh, that's that's good enough. How'd you know I was shaking? You know I'm moving. Well, I know you're moving, and I know you're shaking with frustration. I am. And yeah. anger. A little bit. It's not shaking because you want to shake your booty out of out of fun, uh, like the intention of what moving and shaking is. It is. You're just well, in the middle of it. It's rough. Moving's one of the hardest things ever. Well, it shouldn't take more than a week, and that's what it's taken. Even with using a crew the other day, um, and I, I, I don't know. I'm at a point in my life where I want to simplify, and I, I don't. You know, I have antiques and art and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like putting in a great big pile and setting it on fire i really i really i, I don't have an attachment to things like i used to anymore and i'm when yeah. you have to move them yeah oh, it's, it's me too awful. i mean when i move i will get to a point where i just start trashing box loads of stuff yeah because um, i feel yeah you, you know it's freeing mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah. you know i don't like it's not good to be too attached to your material goods and stuff anyway well it's it's basically not me it's my uh my partner that i'm with she likes to hang on to everything mm-hmm. and everything so it's it's a problem yeah yeah oh but yeah. Uh, before you get me in trouble i'm going to change the topic well that's good because i was about to get in trouble <laughs> yeah. maybe listening so. so uh for those of you new to the show, uh, I should mention this every time because I know it causes confusion with people not as familiar with the show because luckily we're getting new uh, listeners all the time uh, that at the beginning of the show, this first segment, Martin and I will talk some UFO news and joke around and be uh, a little goofy at times, even though we do cover uh, you know credible UFO news and information, but we like to have fun doing it. And then uh, the last two segments are our interview. And our guest today is Micah Hanks. Um, oh. He's best known in this arena for running the podcast, uh, The Graylian Report, which has been around for a long time. I mentioned him quite a bit uh, during the program just because it's his brother that does the opening and close music, Caleb Hanks. They're both very talented musicians. But uh, Micah does other podcasts, and uh, when you hear his voice, you'll hear why. He's got a good radio voice as opposed to my kind of weird voice. But um, he is a very intelligent person and a great thinker in this field, so he's always a lot of fun to talk to. So I'm excited for you all to hear this interview. Yeah, I like Micah a lot. He he can really, uh, he can really as they say in Radioland, burn some tape. Yeah, I mean, he can really do 
Uh, he's, he's a talker, a, but he's very articulate and he is. Um, and poignant. You know, he's very good at mm-hmm. making some uh, great points. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, good guy. Good dude. So we'll be talking to him in a second. But before we do, let's go ahead and talk about some UFO news. What do you got for us uh, to begin with, my friend? Well, it's not really UFO, but it could have been uh, mm. to like an animal on the ground seeing. I mean, I mean, it could have been a person watching it. And what I'm going to talk about today is about the U.S. and Russian astronauts um, that they did oh. an emergency landing. Yeah. And it's uh, it's crazy because they they just uh, they're really, really lucky to be alive, you know, when something like that happens. And I never even realized that they had this little safety little thing that could shoot out. Um, So anyway, it was. Oh, yeah, they all do. That's a really important part of the rocket is that the capsule has explosives, essentially, and and, and even little thrusters so they can quickly. Uh, create space between them and the rocket. So, for instance, you know, sometimes rockets blow up uh, on launch, and the purpose is that hopefully they they have the time where you know it'll trigger and the capsule will be shot into the air and then come down on a parachute, and so they won't be hurt when a rocket explodes or something. But go ahead, yes. Well, yeah. Well, anyway, so two. This is the story basically, and I'm reading this off of a, a Time Times website. So two astronauts from the U.S. and Russia were safe after emergency landing Thursday in the steps of the Kazakhstan following the failure of a Russian booster rocket carrying them to the International Space Station. They were supposed to dock like six hours later, uh, and they didn't quite make it. So NASA astronaut Nick Haig and Roscosmos, uh, I I don't know exactly how to say that, uh, Alexei Ochevin, I should have read this thoroughly, <laughs> Ochevin, Chin, uh, a Russian name, lifted off as scheduled at 2.40 p.m., um, and that's uh, that's 8.40 GMT. So that was Thursday from the Russia-released Bakunur Cosmodome in Kazakhstan atop a Soyuz booster rocket. I'm probably mispronouncing all that stuff, so someone's probably I know you laughing. got Soyuz right. You I got did. rocket right. Wow. And I spend time in Russia, but I don't read Russian, so I don't know, you know, I don't know if it's yeah, close so enough. Yeah, so this was interesting, um, and there are so many implications. Uh, so I'm using my pen. If anybody saw Martin's uh, Martin does podcast UFO, which he also puts on YouTube. He does it live on YouTube, and uh, I do the news on his show. And so I was using my rocket pen, which has the Saturn V on it that I got from the U.S. Space Center um, over in Alabama and uh, uh, where they have a giant. So you can see videos. I've got videos where we had dinner under this giant Saturn V. So I'm going to use this as a demonstration. You can't see this, but I like to play with my little rocket pen. So, um, But essentially, the rocket launched, and uh, and they started feeling weightless. So they're like, uh, I think the rocket is falling back to the planet. And is that? Wow. Yeah, and sure enough, it was. So they're like, whoa, we're not supposed to feel weightless. They're supposed to feel actually some Jeez. mega Gs from yeah the rocket pushing them up into space at uh, extremely fast speeds. So uh, sure enough, the rocket had failed. So they ejected and um, were able to then float back down to the Earth 
Uh, I guess one thing that the rocket was uh, at a severe angle, so they were experiencing 7G, which is really high, and it's it's incredible that they stayed conscious, because at least I haven't heard that they were unconscious, but maybe we haven't heard the full story yet. But typically, that'll make someone go unconscious. It would me, <laughs> you know, so, but they landed and they were fine, thank goodness. Um, but here's the issue. The issue is, uh, as I've covered, like even in a recent story where I talked about the Dragon capsule and the Boeing Starliner, Dragon capsule SpaceX, these are the next spaceships to take humans into, the, especially Americans, into space, which is important because right now we have to rely on the Russians to take up us to the ISS uh, and bring us back, our, our NASA astronauts. But our contract ends next year. But they're the only mm-hmm. game in town. So, uh, and, you know, there's even been a more recent delay. So SpaceX and Boeing aren't going to be ready till, you know, probably late next year um, to take people to the ISS. So uh, there's a problem because now we've got three astronauts up there. There's actually a German, a Russian, and an American on the ISS, but they can't come home. Um, they're supposed to come home on the next Soyuz, uh, which of course was this one. Um, and there's not another one scheduled towards the end of the year. However, we really don't know when the next rocket will go up there because when an incident like this happens, they have to determine exactly what happened, um, and how to make sure it doesn't happen. And that's a process that can take a very long time. So, the, the Russian rockets are going to be grounded until they can figure this out, which may be, uh, they say if it's something simple, you know, uh, hopefully it'll only be a couple months for them to figure it out. But rarely with rocket uh, issues like this, is it something simple? So uh, our astronauts might be stuck up there. And even worse, uh, there is an escape capsule on the ISS. So they could take that and come home. Um, and we might need to do that, but the, it's important that there people be on the ISS to, for maintenance. So, uh, if we don't wow. have anybody on the ISS, uh, it, you know, it throws the budgeting and everything, uh, into flux into, to, you know, nobody knows for sure. And then we have to reevaluate and this situation could literally, kill the ISS it could be determined that it's not worth the effort and the cost to put people back on the ISS uh, so we're just going to focus on other efforts and and ditch the ISS because it's about they're, they're talking about they're definitely going to retire it in 2025 and there has been discussion on on what to do with it so it's an interesting situation that uh, we're put in now, is there any shortage of supplies up there? I mean, they they must be pretty well stocked, I would think, yeah, just I think to be prepared. Yeah, I think they're good. Uh, from what I understand, they're good till early next year. Still, I would not want to be up there with them. <laughs> that must yeah. be a terrible feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, I think they're fine. I mean, I think that they... It might be a little nervous. I mean, one of the things they're going to have to do if they have to take that uh, escape capsule is they're going to have to go through it with a fine tip comb and, you know, make sure that it's ready to go, um, that it's, um, you know, safe, and they'll have to go examine it and put it through its paces to, you know, their safety inspection and everything. Um, 
And of course, if they find an issue, then that will be really scary. So it um, seems like they uh, uh, something this important that they would have some type of backup. You know, yeah. it, it just to have a single well, that capsule is yeah their backup. But I mean, you know, like another, uh, you know, a, another yeah. contract, like redundant backups type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Oh, another contract to get up there too. I know, and mm. you know, with our current relationship with Russia, that that's been an issue. Um, and Russia wants to change. They're changing their whole thing because they were the big game getting rockets and satellites up there. But now um, that other companies, especially SpaceX has done so well that they've taken over the market. And so Russia is having to really uh, re-examine and reprioritize their space program. And uh, in fact, they were the, before we were focused on going back to the moon, they were, which is part of what influenced us also, even though you don't hear much about the political side of things, there was a, you know, a international political uh, motivation for us to go back to the moon too, because China has been, focused on getting back to the moon and and then so did russia's started and now we're in the mix so um yeah it's really interesting scary stuff wild wild, wild. stuff so but uh, you know just just one more thing about yeah. this so this this um capsule came back at a really hard angle and uh you know it was it was almost like they were lucky to survive um, you know, there's a, actually, there's a film, uh, you know, showing of them, you know, getting them out of the capsule in the middle of, in the middle of the desert. But, uh, boy, that is really something. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary stuff. I mean, these people are so brave. I, I, they, they really don't are. No. And they know better than us, you know, just how dangerous what they're doing is. So yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's amazing stuff. I, I personally, you know, when I was younger, I, I thought, hell yeah, I'd do it. But now that I'm older, <laughs> and I think especially when you have, uh, well, there's a lot of different factors that get into it. Yeah, there's, I just couldn't do it. First of all, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I can stand, you know, the high G-forces anymore. I used to be like a... a, a oh, yeah. You know, I used to love like... A, um, what did... You know, you go to a music park and you ride a roller coaster. Roller coaster. <laughs> I used to love them, but now I can't really take them anymore. Let alone, you know, understanding that hey, you could blow up. This could be it. This is some really crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, other news. Want to get into some other news here? Sure. What you got? There's a couple things that I want to talk about. Um, I guess the first thing, just because it's going to become. Uh, such a big deal. And I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but I do a UFO live uh, every Thursday at 6 p.m. on YouTube where I talk about UFO news. And I've talked about this in the past, but uh, this has come up more recently because now there is a story in Ars Technica about to the stars, you know, this group started by Tom DeLonge that includes intelligence people. And it also includes the uh, former chief of what we recently found out was a government UFO program that had been running for many years. Um, that there, there is an SEC filing that came out that showed there's $37 million behind that uh, in debt. Um, and so people have been freaking out about that. Now, if you look further into the filing, it does say this is due to 
uh, stock compensation. So um, I don't think it's real money. You know, I think in other words that they generate, you know, when they become public, they generate a certain amount of stock. And so on paper that their stock is worth X amount, like let's say you have 100 shares at, you know, $100 each, um, that would determine, you know, what that is. And if you haven't sold all those shares, then you're in the red. And I think that's what it's, it's a similar sort of thing. Um, I'm not a lawyer and I, or a uh, accountant and some other accountants have said that uh, that is kind of what it is on uh, our open mind UFO group. Um, but uh, it still is an issue because it does indicate and it even says this in the SE filing that they might not um, be able to exist. They're going to try to continue for a year but this might be an issue that uh tanks the the company essentially well um you you would think that they would uh, be at least addressing this um has anything come out from their publicists um you know answering to what this was going on no and you know what they're not a very proactive when it comes to communication which i think they should be because this actually has this news has been out there for a week or two. Now, there's not a lot of places that are covering it. I think that um, – uh, and you know what? To be honest, I don't know of many others. Of course, I've covered it uh, over the last couple of weeks a couple of times. Um, but, yeah, it, they could have preempted this issue. Um, Ars Technica didn't mention if they had reached out to two of the stars to ask them about it uh i think they should have if they didn't um and it looks like actually there's another story on motherboard about it too that just came out today so a couple stories uh this one i haven't looked at but someone sent it to me um so i'll have to look at this one uh in more detail but um The Ars Technica article that I ran across is actually also, uh, it's inaccurate in many cases as in many parts, uh, which is unfortunate also. Um, So for instance, let me bring it up here. It's called, (laughs) and it's not a very flattering name, All the Dumb Things, question mark. Blink-182 Frontman UFO Project. 37 million in debt. So uh, it, it talks about his book and, you know, his nonfiction book that came out um, for secret. And um, yeah, you know, it's kind of an ancient aliens. It's not really that heavy when it comes to research. I could see them kind of making fun of that. But um, otherwise, I don't think they're this story is really accurate in framing like, you know, the company and what they're doing. And it but wow yeah so this is kind of scary actually um i hope to find out more in the not too distant future now i know you have a connection with a few people there including you've um, communicated with tom um yeah is that kind of an embarrassing thing to reach out and ask i guess exactly so i've Uh, been a little hesitant to do that mm -hmm. um uh, and I know they're busy with a really big project right now. Um, fairly recently, I mean, I've gotten some short messages, like uh, two responses, and I'm supposed to have a couple longer calls here soon. But um, 
I'm definitely going to ask when I'm able to get on a phone call. I just haven't been able to do that yet. So, um, mm. yeah, because I think that it would be good for them to get in front of this and kind of frame it. Um, right. Even if it's to say, yes, we're, you know, um, things are not looking great for us, but what this means and what this means for our future. I mean, that'd be helpful for people to know. And I think that um, investors are probably really scared. Um, yeah, now, I mean, if you don't talk about it, you cause, um, you know, suspicion and, you know, speculation and conspiracies and all yeah. that. It's best just to address it right up front if you can. Yeah, especially when major media gets a hold of it. And if they're not right. representing it accurately, then um, really kind of have you could that's why you got to get in front of these things and um you know put your your spin or at least your take on things um before others start to do it Mm -hmm. yeah so hopefully let's see this might become a big story because people like to fun of of course this sort of stuff that they think might be kind of frivolous or silly um but we'll see Mm -hmm. right definitely not positive uh but otherwise Another thing that's happening right now is uh, New York Comic Con happened uh, last weekend, not just, you know, yesterday, but uh, a couple, you know, week ago, uh, or a little more than a week ago. And a big presence there was uh, History Channel's Blue Project Blue Book. And so this mm-hmm. week we got a lot of stories about the History Channel television show Project Blue Book, which is going to, you know, be about the U.S. government's uh, investigation into UFOs in the late 40s up until the late 60s. And uh, the scientific consultant, astronomer Dr. J. Allen Hynek, uh, who was a skeptic of UFOs and then became, as he helped the Air Force investigate, became uh, interested and saw this as a legitimate mystery. In fact, he started the Center for UFO Research he uh, coined the phrase close encounters to explain mm-hmm. the different types of UFO research. Of course, that's the movie uh, was named after that, the Spielberg movie. And uh, so he's going to be like the main character. Now, it's fictional. So, uh, and for instance, you know, they're going to have Heineck investigating cases he didn't really investigate. They're going to have him, you know, kind of looking for some kind of major conspiracy going on behind the scenes, which is uh, at least... Uh, nothing that he shared uh that he did however some people suspect perhaps you know there was uh information being hidden in fact when blue book was closed i think it's called the bollinger memo i can't remember the exact name of the memo but you can find it on openminds.tv when you look at the air force and military we have a video on our youtube about it too but this memo said that's okay if you close blue book because uh the most important cases we send somewhere else anyway so they were investigating cases outside of Blue Book. But anyway, uh, the show is depicting real UFO cases, uh, which is pretty exciting, I think. And the yeah. History Channel has been writing legit you know, news stories about some of these old cases, uh, and they're great stories. But yeah, there's been a, a bunch of media about this upcoming show. Uh, which I is see that. That's what it, when I looked for stories today, I saw several. Uh, you know, stories about the upcoming mm-hmm. uh, project, which is great. Yeah. The only last thing I'll say is uh, Nick Pope came out with a new documentary called Aliens in the Pentagon. Oh, yeah. Nick Pope's great. He worked for the Ministry of Defense. In fact, he's got an article today about uh, To the Stars in The Guardian. 
which is a UK paper, but he worked for the Ministry of Defense, the British Ministry of Defense, investigating UFOs in the 90s. And like Heineck and like many other, like Elizondo, uh, were skeptical when they began uh, their investigations, but came out thinking, wow, there's really something to this. Um, the reviews haven't been so great because it looks like they use lots of stock images and stock footage that they repeat through the video, uh, which is unfortunate, kind of amateurish. But, uh, you know, Nick Pope is, is great. I mean, he's a very intelligent person and I think has a lot of great things to say. So, um, yeah. Oh, great. When when does that actually get released? It's already released, I guess. So, oh. uh yeah, we have a link to the story about it, but uh, at openmind.tv, but we're out of time. Ah, wow. All right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Martin. Yeah, you're very welcome. Let's go ahead and talk with Micah Hanks right after this break. Happy to welcome back to the show, Micah Hanks. It's been a while, I think. Yeah, it absolutely has. I have uh, seen you more recently in real life than it has been uh, an occasion for us to catch up on this podcast. Mm-hmm. When we were, of course, out there in Wyoming together a few weeks ago, so it's only proper that we actually do another show together as well. Good to be here. Mm-hmm. Well, and I did those interviews, you know, where we talked about Close Encounters, and hopefully you've seen those. I posted those on, on YouTube. Yeah, not only have I seen those those videos you did, and they turned out great, by the way, but when I went back and I watched it, and I was hearing all this commentary about the famous film, Close Encounters, uh, Steven Spielberg, I was like, you know, what in the world was I thinking not watching that before I went to <laughs> Devil's Tower? And, and, the, and the broader question, of course, that many probably already have in their minds is, how could he not have seen it you know, to begin with? So I, so I did go back and watch it, and uh, yeah, it's a great film. Oh, so you oh. did watch it. That's funny. <laughs> Uh, because in a way, it was kind of good that you hadn't watched it, at least for um, the piece. And, and I like that because to me, uh, it's kind of shocking. And, and it's been something that in the last year since The Last Devil's Tower is talking to the people who hadn't seen it. And it's mostly younger people. So you kind of represented this group of people who had never seen it. But uh, so it was interesting to hear your comments because it still was culturally significant. Like people know it exists and it's out there, um, but they just hadn't seen it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, I think that kind of mirrors a broader thing that I see Alejandro with regard to uh, at least my own experience with the UFO subject. A lot of people talk to me and they're like, ah, you were a child of the 90s growing up. You must have watched, you know. Films like Close Encounters, you probably were a huge fan of the X-Files. And, you know, it's it's always funny because I guess there's this tremendous letdown when I tell people, <laughs> no, actually, I never watched X-Files. I never saw Close Encounters. I did own uh, E.T. on VHS, and I didn't really when I was a child. I didn't enjoy the film as much as I do now. Now I can go back and watch, again, what what you consider classic cinema of my childhood – and, you know, that's what I call the golden age of special effects. Special effects reached mm. this kind of epitome of realness. You know, I mean, it, the clarity and the genuine nature of the appearance was great. It was fun, but it hadn't gotten to the point of CGI where 
Yeah. You know, CGI in its infancy didn't always look all that great. And so I I think those films from the 80s and early 90s are a special era where things looked as good as they were going to look before CGI came along. But uh, now I go back and I I love those shows and all those films, but they weren't the things that got me into ufology. The things that got me into ufology were actual books and studies pertaining to unusual things seen in the sky. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, which makes a lot of sense because, and which is actually better because movies aren't real, whereas <laughs> the books and the information. And I always have felt, you know, personally, and I would love to hear your thoughts as well, is that reality, like they say, truth is much stranger than fiction. And it's true. I, I the stories, the real stories, are so much more exciting than uh, I feel for the most part than what we see on television. Well, yes, certainly. And again, you've got to be really careful uh, when you enjoy the, you know, the fantastical kind of representations in fiction and film of these sort of subjects. You've got to be careful that those interpretations through fantasy don't color the way that you look at the possible reality underlying some of it. I mean, a good example of that that I've kept with me for years, and this is a film from the 90s that I remember very vividly because it was so scary to me at that time, Fire in the Sky. You know, based on the mm-hmm. famous experiences of Travis Walton, our friend. And, uh, you know, when you meet Travis or you, you see him give a lecture these days and he points out all the differences between that film and his actual experience. And anyone who's read his book is probably already familiar with those things, as I kind of was. You know, it's a great example of how a popular representation through film and fantasy uh, of this subject can often not only have a very different kind of uh, you know, a, a vibe and presentation than the actual subject does, but it can be scary and it can also dissuade viewers or mislead people into thinking that there's one thing going on or that it's this horrific kind of a thing. Uh, to me, ufology isn't really that. And although I don't deal very much in the, you know, close encounter, uh, you know, side of it, I'm interested in the tangible idea of there being objects in the sky and how science can be applied to the study of them. Again, I've always, I think, been aware, thanks in part to films like that and what guys like Travis have to say about his actual experiences, you know, that you've got to be careful about letting the fantastical element color your perceptions of the phenomena. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of maybe beneficial, at least if you're speaking for myself here, that I didn't you know, get entirely saturated with that kind of media growing up. I came into this kind of going, what's this all about? And now i got to catch up and go back and watch all the movies. Mm-hmm. Well, Close Encounters, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then The Fire in the Sky. And what – I guess – I and I think – I don't know. I would love to hear your thoughts. And, and I, I almost think that a lot of times when people are presented with a large amount of, of – mystery or unknown that it's a little bit of overload and i think they we all do this when it comes to technology and things that we just don't completely understand is that we acknowledge it and kind of move on with our lives and and i i was thinking of this last night when i was watching the hunt for the skinwalker uh documentary again with some friends and um Someone, and they didn't even say who said this, but about if we let people know there'd be too much and they'd be overwhelmed. And it's, I don't think people work like that. It's its almost like this, um, you know, a breaker that we all have. Like when our brains, when we get confronted with a lot of unknown, we just kind of turn off and, and don't ignore it. It's just like, well, I'm not going to be able to comprehend all of that. So I'll acknowledge kind of that it's there and just kind of move on with my life. Right. Yeah. There, and we'll have to talk about uh, Mr. Corbell's film here a little later because I recently okay. watched 
too. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of dimensions to what you're talking about right there. And again, you know, let's let's bring it back down to the idea of, you know, the fact versus the fantasy. Uh, you see what appears in films and it is, again, it's intended to be in your face and overtly otherworldly with, you know, again, representations of alien beings and in the interior of very advanced spacecraft from other planets and things like this. And you see this not only in E.T. and Close Encounters, but of course, you know, more recent films like Independence Day. Uh, although that's still from that same era. Again, you know, I mean, throughout the ages, we could continue to name them all the way up to the, the stuff that you're seeing, like the arrival in theaters right now, or at least a couple of years ago. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> there, there are all these different interpretations of what eventual contact with alien life might be like. And then if you move over into the paradigm of reality where people report seeing unusual things sometimes, whether that be a light in the sky and it's a very kind of a vague experience that could be any number of things and a lot of it is really – fundamentally based on the interpretation, the filters of human interpretation. One person might see a light in the distance and say star or airplane. Another person might say, you know, aircraft from Zeta to Reticuli. You know, that's that's really, I think, what for me got me into looking at psychology in relation to all of this. The idea that memories sometimes can be updated and that people can, although they don't intend to do it, you know, it seems to be a function of memory that over time people will kind of update their experiences and that leads to the misremembering mm-hmm. of things and fabulation. So that's one element that has to be considered too. But in, in, in relation to people not being able to handle it or it being like a complete mental overload, uh, and, and that's speaking about really the UFO experience in the moment as it's happening and then immediately thereafter, I don't think that you know people just wouldn't be able to handle it. If you actually talk with UFO witnesses and people who have seen even more extraordinary things – that they would, again, describe as being a tangible, structured craft, for instance. Many people will describe being curious or even frightened at the time. but And you've probably heard this time and time again, Alejandro, that many years later, it's brought up in a conversation and they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. You know, I saw that thing, too. I saw a triangle-shaped object. Or I saw this or that. And then they'll remember all of a sudden. It's like this flood of memories comes back and they describe feeling whatever they felt at the time. But often that experience, due to its weirdness, is kind of more like a hiccup, like a novel. Oh, that's weird. And then they kind of move on and forget about it rather than this paradigm shift. It seems actually far less common that people describe a life-changing experience when they've seen a so-called UFO than the people who kind of see it, duly noted, move on, forget about it maybe, and then it's brought up again years later. Remember, by the way, um, a good example of this, Kurt Russell coming out in that interview a couple of years ago saying, hey, I was the pilot who reported seeing the Phoenix Lines. You remember that? I do very well, and I think you make a great point because it also reminds me, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, uh, often when people are like, I was with a group of people, and we saw this object, and I was just shocked, and I was so surprised, and I, I went to my buddies, and I was like, do you guys see this? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know what that is. And they were like, yeah, I don't know what it is either. And they didn't seem to really care. And it was extraordinary. And I couldn't believe that they didn't care. I mean, you hear this so often, um, you know, that like one person out of the group really had uh, much of an impact. Yeah. Another iteration of that kind of, you know, the, the varieties of the UFO experience through human interpretation is one that I think it's best encapsulated uh, in the context of a story that a friend of mine who was a scholar shared with me a number of years ago. And he had two other friends who also, they all three had PhDs, but I think that, you know, one was a humanities professor. One was actually a, a physicist or an astronomer. I don't remember what the vocation of the other was, 
they're all three sitting there at a cookout, and uh, one of them brings up, it may have been the, the astronomer, brings up uh, the idea of UFOs and says, you know, what do you think about that? And the, there's one of them among the three that is really skeptical, and, and he says to my friend and the other fella, oh, come on, are you really going to bring that up? Well, my friend mentions having had an experience seeing something, and so did the astronomer. And then the skeptic among the three PhDs goes, well, you know, in truth, actually, and I don't know what it was, but and he starts to tell his own story too. So in the context of a conversation with fellow academics, he initially downplayed the idea uh, in a skeptical fashion because that was, I think, the response that he expected he should give. But then when he found out he was in the company of two fellow experiencers, if you want to call them that, then he shares his own experience, the skeptic. So that's an interesting thing, too, because I think that many people kind of judge their experience based on the paradigm of belief or skepticism. Often when people find out I, I'm interested in UFOs, they say, I believe they're up there. I believe we've been visited. They say things like that, which, again, in that context, obviously denote you know, the idea of alien visitation. And, you know, if I spend more than five minutes talking with somebody, a lot of the time it's just kind of nodding and saying, uh-huh, that's neat, interesting. I want to hear what people have to say, but very seldom does the conversation progress to a point where I actually describe what I think about this subject. And and I often have to tell people, if we do get that far, that, you know, I'm not really necessarily talking about aliens here. When we talk about unidentified flying objects, I mean exactly, precisely that. Now, there are other interpretations that go beyond that. And that's, by the way, Alejandro, something that I really did enjoy about being out in Wyoming. That, you know, with you there, David Marler, Mark D'Antonio, some of the great speakers, Karen as well. I mean, all these folks who are, who are coming at this from different pers- you know, perspectives and angles. But nonetheless, the, the approach was very scholarly. And I think everyone was trying to kind of reserve judgment in terms of, of you know, what this phenomena actually is. So, again, the varieties of interpretation – I mean, they're almost too many to count, but you you know you have to look at the psychological side of this too, and the reasons for human belief in relation to the subject in order to understand it in the broader sense. Mm-hmm. Right, and and I love getting into this area, and and this is something that you, you know I know that you're interested in, and I am very much so also because we come from a similar perspective. Because I feel exactly like you do. You know, people talking <laughs> about UFOs, uh, assuming they're alien, and then eventually, if they ask, you know, educating them that. You know a, a, a about what a UFO actually means, and like you said, the researchers there at the Devil's Tower were all very careful about this, and uh, it's something that you know is really important. Is uh, and I know you're like this too. You're careful about the the words that you choose and their definitions, and you even correct yourself or or add information to clarify your point. But uh, I find myself, and I think it's important for us all to do so, is to make that definition with UFOs. I'm talking about unidentified. I'm talking about something mysterious. We don't know what it is, but not necessarily jumping to the conclusion that that it's alien or, or from another planet. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly... I think that, and again, maybe you would, you know, share a similar experience too, but over the years, taking that approach seems to have made a lot of uh, opportunities for me to talk with people who I believe to be very credible witnesses. I mean, people who, frankly, I've also in some instances formed relationships with, and, you know, that allows me to trust them more or less implicitly and explicitly. I mean, they are good people, and I'll give you a couple of really good examples. Um, One of my... um, 
colleagues in the historical and archaeological research that I do with my guys with seven ages. And of course, that's a whole different dimension of what I do. But the seven ages research team and I are interested in mysteries of the past and not, you know, necessarily very sensational stuff. I mean, we're talking about North American archaeology, geology and things like this. And so it's very fitting. We've got a geologist on our team, but he's also and this is James Waldo, who was a guest incidentally last week on my uh, Graylian Report podcast. But uh, James also served many, many years in the U.S. Army and he was stationed in Iraq. And while he was there. Late, late one night, he actually observed a large triangle-shaped aircraft, and he didn't know exactly what it was. And he even recalls emailing uh, John Greenwald and you know describing this experience. Uh, and we were talking about this, and while we were traveling last week, he and uh, our mutual friend Jason Pintrail, uh, also with the team, the three of us are traveling through parts of uh, Georgia and Alabama, and we met up with a, a friend of mine. I actually, I'd known him for a while, but I met him for the first time. Over the weekend, and that was uh, Lash LaRue. That's the former pro wrestler, WCW and WWE. And uh, so it was really kind of an interesting, um, a motley crew, you might say. But we brought up James's encounter, and lo and behold, here's my former pro wrestler friend Lash saying, Ah, I saw one of those too. And then he shares his experience right down there near the Talladega Motor Speedway, seeing a black triangle shaped aircraft. He said it was maybe about the size of a school bus hovering silently. And they noticed it in the sky, and they thought, "What? what is that? He, his brother, and uh, I believe it was his wife. It was the third witness there with him. And they said that they looked up at it, and they saw it, and that only just a few moments after they noticed it, it took off very quickly. But it had been hovering in the sky, completely silent, jet black. And again, it's interesting that not only is there continuity between the reports, but again, if you approach, and I find that, again, discussing the subject with people in the context of I wonder if there are experimental aircraft. I wonder if there are unusual things in the sky, uh, you know, along the lines of some sort of technology that maybe, you know, on the civilian level we aren't aware of. Uh, so phrasing the concept in those terms and not leaping to conclusions, ancient aliens visiting Earth, you know, for millennia, <laughs> seeding humanity here on planet Earth, you know, not going to the depths of, again, what I think kind of steps over into the fantastical realm for me has yielded pretty good results. And again, that's something that we saw out there in Wyoming. I mentioned these triangle aircraft. There are just a plethora of really, I think, very good reports indicating that these aircraft, whatever they are in different sizes, but certainly maintaining that triangular shape, do exist. Best evidenced, of course, I think, by the research of our colleague David Marler. And uh, it's a fascinating element within the UFO, the broader UFO phenomena that really seems to point at something very consistent uh, from, from case to case that's going on. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think you brought up something else that's also really interesting, which is the uh, the skeptics. And I, I think this is important, especially for you and I, because um, we are, um, especially in this field, I, I, at least I'm speaking for myself, and I, I, I think you can identify, considered a skeptic often, uh, which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you know, there are those skeptics who uh, essentially are kind of contrarians, essentially. And, and it almost seems like kind of in it for the battle, which kind of sounds like, like your friend you had mentioned before. But what's fascinating with many of those people who just fight tooth and nail to refuse that, you know, there, there's any sort of mystery, at least to battle uh, intellectually with, with those of us who think that there there is a genuine mystery. But often... 
um, their interest is rooted in an experience that they rarely feel comfortable enough to share, like uh, your friend had, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's true also. And, you know, while we're discussing the, you know, the idea of psychology, credibility, you know, phrasing the UFO subject in a way that is both credible, which is conducive not only to communicating to others about it, but also in terms of being able to kind of field for better data, you know, from people that you might encounter who have had similar experiences. It's important to address, you know, modern skepticism in regard to all this, too, because, you know, I've got a lot of friends in the skeptical community who I really uh, appreciate. I mean, some of them have at times offered critiques of my work, which has led to broader uh, conversation and uh, and I think, you know, sharing of ideas, tightening of some of my own. Eric Wojciechowski one guy that comes to mind, Robert Schaefer, who often attends the UFO Congresses. You know, both of these guys I've corresponded with over the years. We may not always agree, like, you know, Bob Schaefer and I, for instance, but we definitely uh, appreciate, I think, having a more rational approach. And, and you know, we like to correspond. And, and, and I certainly appreciate some of his work. I may not agree with everything, all the conclusions that he comes to. I do think that there are aircraft which are unaccounted for wherever they may be from. Uh, and I don't think that that's a far out proposition. I'm also open to uh, more far out ideas, but I mean, that's pending further evidence. And that's where I think you and I get labeled skeptics too, which I really don't mind. And on that subject of using the term skeptic, Again, many people say big S skeptic and little s skeptic. I've called myself a skeptic for years, but I'm kind of getting away from that, Alejandro. And I'll tell you why. It's not because I'm trying to become a person who wants to validate fringe claims or be called a believer or, or whatever else. It really has more to do with me just not liking the labels at all. I think that's kind of the problem. Once you start calling yourself a skeptic or a believer, I find that – you know, people who, who use terms to identify themselves and orient themselves with the subject tend to kind of begin falling into a bit of a cult of personality. Uh, not all of them, but it does happen from time to time where, you know, well, I'm a skeptic and I'm going to be more skeptical. And I've, I've caught myself doing this too, just being more prone to rule something out of hand without doing good uh, historical and scientific research uh, in the name of falling in step with a skeptical approach and attitude. And so, at least for my own part, I actually like to kind of, you know, move away from those labels and just say, look, I'm just going to try and be as unbiased about this as possible, open-minded but skeptical in approach so that I can, you know, again, falsify, uh, you know, the evidence if necessary and take a scientific uh, approach toward uh, further inquiry and not try to prove so much as disprove uh, what may represent a phenomena. And it's much easier in most cases, as you know, to disprove or to falsify uh, extraordinary claims. It's those few cases, though, that come, you know, that, 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 that come along every few years or so where there's an accumulation of really good data. One that David Marler and I both talked about out there in Wyoming had been the St. Clair County incident from 2000, uh, which involved a number of police officers that observed large triangular-shaped aircraft early in the morning and not only did they all observe it, one of them got a really terrible photograph of it too, but, and this is key, they were describing the object in real time uh, via police dispatch, and those recordings were later released to the public. And David Marler goes even deeper into that case in his uh, book uh, on triangular UFOs, an estimate of the situation, uh, where he talks about the fact that he was able to eventually get information about air traffic control um, uh, info and data from that from that evening in question, not from Scott Air Force Base, but from the regional airport there. Uh, they did release some information about their their actual um, radar, but what they did not apparently uh, 
have access to at that time was information about whether or not the military had been tracking it. They did tell David Marler that an outside agency had requested the information as well, which seems to indicate that they did have an interest and were trying to get further details despite saying they knew nothing about what the aircraft was and had no reports of it being there. So, again, through some of the the detective work that guys like Marler have done and then also just the information that was released with regard to police dispatch recordings about that incident, we have pretty good descriptions of an object, very large, consistent in shape, uh, seen at around the same time and by a number of different police officers from different areas uh, in southern Illinois. And again, to me, that's a really good case that I think you know holds water, so to speak. You know, it gives us a lot of details about this object, and and it kind of helps remove coming back to that psychological idea of updating memory over time. With the descriptions given in real time, it gives us a pretty good idea of what they were looking at, albeit the fact that it was dark when it occurred. But nonetheless, this thing did have some lights on it. It gives us a pretty good description of the object that is a record. You know, that we can go back to and we can refer to in hindsight and say, well, this is how they described it as the officers were seeing it. And so we can be pretty sure based on the, you know, the continuity between the descriptions given in real time on those recordings that, you know, this is what it probably looked like. Uh, but those kind of good cases don't come along often. That's really, I think, the truth of UFO research, isn't it? Yeah. And you have, you know, there's a couple really good points there that I want to touch on, but it's time for us to take our first break. So uh, we're already to the halfway point. Time flies. But uh, which I knew it would talking to you um, because time flies all the time when we get in these conversations. But uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break. For those of you listening on KGRA, you'll hear a commercial break. Those of you listening to the podcast, We'll hear a short musical interlude, and we will return shortly with Micah Hanks. Back to Open Mind GFO Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and we're here with Micah Hanks. And, you know, I think you brought up something interesting with you trying to not pigeonhole yourself. And I think that is a bit of an issue with this uh, kind of particular area of study also. Uh, there's always a set of assumptions. Like, I think... You know, um, when, for instance, if you take the researchers at the conference, the Devil's Tower, all of us who were there, we all respect each other's work. Um, we're very fascinated in what we all have to say and our points of view. But, you know, we're all individuals with different perspectives on a lot of different things. In fact, Mark and I, even in the middle of somebody's talk, got in a probably David Marler's who brought up a case or something and we had a little bit of a of a you know um debate and then came to an agreement after a few minutes uh but that's the point you know that i i think and if you 
pigeonhole yourselves or put yourself in a camp, then like you said, you know, I think people can then tend to want to jump on the bandwagon as as opposed to, you know, taking an independent look uh, and making their own determination. Well, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of these bandwagons and preconceptions about what UFOs are or, you know, what the best way to go about being a UFO researcher is, I mean, again, those preconceptions are actually projected onto UFO researchers. Mm-hmm. Well, the first time I came out and spoke at the International UFO Congress, um, you know, I remember that uh, there was uh, there was a mixed attitude in relation to the talk I gave, just to use myself as an example here. And part of the reason why is because I've always tried to apply philosophy and, and in specific a little you know, epistemological kind of uh, reckoning of sorts to ufology. In other words, how do we apply philosophically the concept of how do we know what we know about this subject to the broader idea of UFOs? I mean, asking that fundamental epistemological question of well, what, how do we know what we know or what we claim to know about UFOs, that is the first step toward, I think, you know, unmarrying yourself to the alien idea or any other pet theory and beginning to really take on a more objective approach toward the subject. And and although I've always identified that objectivity as skepticism, I think, again, it, it's healthy at times also to try and unmarry yourself from, you know, the disposition of skepticism so that you don't become biased in that regard either. I mean, to really truly be objective in studying this phenomena Nobody ever said it was easy. And and again, psychology and philosophy are things that really come into play with it. But trying to bring that kind of discussion and dialogue to the subject got, like I said, mixed reviews when I first started giving lectures uh, at bigger conferences about this kind of stuff. And especially among, and I would say, you know, researchers and also enthusiasts who are several decades older than me. Uh, and I remember one or two of them coming up to me after the uh, after the talk I gave. And I was standing there with Richard Dolan. And this fellow said, I'm really surprised the two of you are friends. And Richard's like, what do you mean? Why, why wouldn't we be friends? You know, Richard and I, you know, we, we don't always see eye to eye either, but we are very good friends and we respect each other and, and the work that each, you know, each of us does. And uh, this fellow says, well, you know, Micah here, he just talks about philosophy and about, you know, belief and psychology and things like that in relation to this subject. And yet there aren't any real details. This guy doesn't give us any real details about cases. And Richard, you know, on the other hand, has done all this historical work and analysis. And it's like, you know, first of all, you guys are from completely different paradigms. And second of all, I'm not sure what Micah there does is even ufology. Well, Richard disagreed pretty adamantly. And he said, no, no, you know, what Micah is doing is a different approach, but it's just as necessary as what I do. And I'm sure that people have probably said that to Richard, too. You know, well, you aren't a real investigator. You aren't getting out there and actually doing investigations or whatever. You're just a guy who reads history books and tries to put, put all this in the context of government and politics and things like that. But that's the whole thing is that, you know, it seems like at some point all the good UFO researchers or rather those who aspired to be good UFO researchers, they kind of they were all trying to emulate, I guess, what guys like Stanton Friedman had done. You know, go to the National Archives, dig up as much historical resource material as they could and put together this watertight, I mean, or waterproof, you know, argument in relation to one case or another case, you know, Roswell or whatever else. And that's one approach. Historical analysis, uh, you know, like that is one approach to studying this phenomena. Then there's, again, what guys like, you know, my colleague in Australia, Paul Dean, do. Almost all their research is based around filing Freedom of Information Act requests to government. Again, John Greenwald, who we mentioned earlier, he's really the Mac Daddy of, as far as that goes. He's been doing it since he was a teenager with the Black Vault. Um, you know, then there's the the side of it where someone might analyze this phenomena culturally 
uh, philosophically, psychologically, like I tend to do because I want to understand how human belief influences and, and uh, you know, not only an experience with UFOs, but also how in the broader idea of culture, especially in the Western world, you know, how that interpretation of the phenomena and expectations in relation to it color the actual research. You see that too. And so all of these perspectives are very important. And I don't think that you can say that there's one way to do ufology and it's got to be just like how Stanton Friedman did it or it's not really ufology. It's so <laughs> funny. I agree Bro with you 100%. And I, I was in a conversation like this recently and there was a skeptic and essentially it was about um, statistics. Uh, in fact, this person was arguing about uh, Cheryl Costa and, you know, she writes for Syracuse New Times and she writes a lot about the statistics regarding the MUFON reports. And he was like, you know, we can't just look at these numbers. You can't just look at the nuts and bolts, like what To The Stars is doing. There's so much. What about, you know, the cultural things? What about the social sciences? And this person was in social sciences. And they were attacking me as if I was saying, no, you have to only do it this way. And, and I think it was a bit surprised. And that I was like, I'm agreeing with you. I totally agree that... Just like you said, there are so many different ways. There's so many different disciplines that need to be involved with looking into this. And, and in fact, I want to uh, go a different direction than people normally go with you in a minute. But um, just the same thing. And it, w it was just kind of funny, the skeptic coming at me like, ah, why aren't you guys doing this and this? And which is a little bit frustrating because it's, it's like, who's you guys? I'm just a me, uh, first of all. So I can't represent the entire field. And second of all, I agree with you, you know, and, and uh, that it does take a multidisciplinary, you know, approach to really, truly look at all of this. Absolutely. And again, that's why I enjoy the writing of guys like uh, NASA historian James Oberg, for instance, as yes. much as I enjoy reading your stuff or, or David Marler's stuff. I mean, I don't pick a certain ideology or a certain researcher or a certain pet theory and put everything I study in relation to this subject or any subject for that matter because UFOs are only – they're like the pinky on the broader hand of my interests, you know. Mm -hmm. But I mean, whatever the subject is I'm interested in, you know, I don't, I don't just narrow my focus so much because I do think that – while there's merit to being a specialist, if you really want to understand this phenomena, there are a variety of approaches that must be applied. And so, again, I think it's really important that although people should be – I prefer when people are scientifically inclined. And I could go off you know, wasting time really naming things that I think are unproductive in relation to methods of inquiry for UFOs. You know, sitting around singing Kumbaya and trying to raise our chakras or something like that and call down aliens – I might say that that's on the lesser end of importance when it comes to how science can be applied to UFO research. But I do think that an interdisciplinary approach where specialists with different backgrounds and areas of interest work together and try and compare everything from, you know, analytical science to, you know, psychology, nuts and bolts, historical research, and also field investigation that involves physical trace evidence, what little can be gleaned in terms of UFO reports. You know, all these things working together are the best approach to trying to understand this phenomena. I do not think, however, being so skeptical that you just say, no, it isn't. No, it can't. No, it doesn't. There is nothing to see here. Shut up. Quit talking about it. That, that's not a that's not a constructive way of going about trying to study this either. So, again, I just I fundamentally think being scientific is the best approach to studying UFOs. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to kind of move away from that, even though that's a whole topic. And that would be really interesting to to talk about 
you know, how do we scientifically study UFOs? But we don't have time for that conversation, quite frankly. So maybe we'll talk about that later. And yeah. I really want to go a different direction, which is, uh, I think, something unique about uh, a more unique perspective, which is, you know, I am really when I see view myself and what I do, I feel more like a futurist um, in that I love to write about space and, and space technology, space tourism. Uh, and for me, you know, the idea of UFOs and UFO research kind of fits in that. Um, and so for you, uh, you call, you know, your Graylian report, your, your tagline is the future is now. And I guess that indicates that, you know, what you're thinking of is, is this idea of what the future is, you know, um, how does that pertain to what you do? Oh, that's a really good question. And again, every time I sit down and talk with you and you and I start comparing notes, I realize how much more alike we are than I ever realized. And so, yeah, at one time, especially when I really started uh, trying to get serious uh, about my inquiries into the UFO subject, I actually began, that's when I added that tagline, the future is now. And, uh, and I actually at, at times have referred to myself also as a futurist because I'm not just interested in the future of aerospace. Also, I'm interested in artificial intelligence, and I keep a very close eye on developments in that area uh, because I think that it is both a promising element that may arise in the not-too-distant future, technologically speaking, but it is also something that bears potential for harm. And so – and really, you know, I mean it doesn't seem to be the case that UFO phenomena – uh, in any way uh, has communicated to us any kind of threat. Uh, and so I don't necessarily apply the same sort of existential concerns to ufology that I would something like artificial intelligence, et cetera. But I'm, I at least reserve judgment on, on leaping to the conclusion that there's no danger or, or existential concerns that should be associated with it. And in fact, there are plenty of them that we could talk about. So all those things kind of do put me in the futurist camp in that regard, although it's funny. I told Jason Pentrail, my colleague with Seven Ages, again, we do history and archaeology with that team, and, and we have a podcast associated with that too. And I do another show called Middle Theory, which is all about news and current events. And I said to him, it's like each podcast deals with a different era. It's like you know, Seven Ages is the past, Middle Theory is the present, and Graylian Report is the future. So you might say I'm a bit of a time traveler in the sense that I'm, <laughs> I look at all eras – as it relates to history, past, present, and future. But I definitely think that understanding trends technologically and otherwise uh, that we're seeing right now uh, and what the idea of tomorrow is shaping up to be can help us in relation to studying UFOs. Uh, there's that old adage, I guess, Alejandro, that you hear from time to time, which uh, has to do with you know anything that the government's working on right now. You know, The civilian level isn't going to hear about it for another 30 years. Which implies that there are technologies – again, that's just a ballpark figure and I'm using an anecdote. But I mean one might say that there are probably in likelihood technologies that, again, on the civilian level we don't know about that are maybe 30 years or so, give or take, in advance of what we know to exist. And so in that, in that sense, the future really is right now. And I think that it definitely at very least – summarizes part of the issue that we see with UFOs because we appear to be dealing with a technology that is at least a few years in advance of us. Now, many people would say in order to be able to get here from another planet, again, kind of operating within the alien or ET paradigm, I mean, they'd have to be hundreds, maybe thousands of years in advance 
of us. But the technology, at very least in terms of, and this is a supposition, so we've got to be careful as we deal in the realm of speculation here. Uh, the technology does not appear necessarily to be decade, or I'm sorry, hundreds of years, centuries or more ahead of us. It, it really, I think, seems more more like it's in the in the realm of decades. And there are weird little things that come up in the context of UFO literature that seem to point to this. For instance, a really quick one has to do with Betty and Barney Hill. And during their alleged abduction uh, experience back, you know, decades ago, they uh, Betty specifically described a pregnancy test in which a needle was uh, injected into her abdomen, and she was, uh, you know, she perceived this as being a a pregnancy test. It was described as being similar to what is known as amniocentesis, which is at, at that time, in fact, actually, it would have been sort of nascent technology. By today's standards, it's considered fairly archaic. And yet it was described in the context of an abduction experience where a woman claimed that this occurred to her. And so the reason that's significant, and Nick Redfern and other researchers have pointed that out, is we didn't see some sort of advanced technology with lasers or holograms or something like that. We saw something that was just a few years ahead of what the state-of-the-art technology at that time actually was. And you might say similar things, and we could, again, go off in, on a tangent, but I'd rather save the time here. But applying that kind of observation to broader ufology, you know, in terms of what, you know, what is the state of the art of this technology, whatever it is, where is it from, all indications point to the idea that it's something that's more relatively close to where we are today than what we would expect, perhaps, from alien technology centuries or thousands of years in advance of us. I hope that kind of makes sense. But again, in that kind of framework, looking at the technology that we expect of the next few decades, I think can be very um, informative for us in terms of trying to interpret UFO phenomena that is you know, described by experiencers today. You know, and I think this gets us back to a, a couple things, uh, but one of them being uh, the Hunt for the Skinwalker uh, video, because uh, getting back to what you're talking about here is that, you know, when you get into the nitty gritty of the phenomena, it is very confounding, um, like they found with their, their Skinwalker investigations and Jeremy's uh, documentary or in the George Knapp book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. And it kind of then, it's one of the reasons I like to look at the peripheral uh, issues as well because uh, the, the confounding nature of the phenomena has an effect on people and uh, it, it often an emotional effect. And I think even the confounding nature of the phenomena itself often kind of creates these... Uh, tensions and and uh you know problems with people involved with this stuff communicating with each other because we're trying to interpret something that might not be interpretable uh for us right now right that's a very good point again it's so often said it's almost blasé but arthur c clark talking about you know any significantly advanced technology as observed by a lesser advanced uh you know technological group or civilization will be perceived as magic. And it very well may be that certain things that we liken today to spiritual phenomena or, or you know, experiences that really fall outside the paradigm of what science can explain and therefore are often relegated to myth or superstition. It very well may be further on down the road that we'll recognize those things as technologies in and of themselves at some point, but we aren't to that point where we understand them and therefore they seem magical. You know, uh, Arthur Clarke, again, a very, a very wise futurist who tried to anticipate 
future developments. And if you go back and watch videos of him, I mean, he predicted the internet. He predicted news and media taking, you know, moving over into the web and, you know, economic and social considerations in relation to all that. It's really fascinating watching old videos of Arthur C. Clarke. But uh, yeah, I think that, again, it's, it's it's important to to take all these things into consideration because of the way that, like you said, the phenomena that we perceive as described in anecdotal instances, reports, you know, by those who claim to be experiencers, it does have a confounding effect in many instances. And that was probably best displayed during some of the phenomena described there at the so-called Skinwalker Ranch. And I just got to give Jeremy Corbell uh, props for an excellent job he did on that documentary. I didn't just rent it. I bought a copy because I wanted to support him and, uh, and also be able to refer back to it and watch it many times as I know that you have. Excellent documentary, some excellent archival footage, and uh, through the conversations between Corbell and George Knapp, uh, it, it also, I think, very effectively anticipated some of the developments that have come out in relation to the famous, now famous, Pentagon UFO uh, study. Uh, in fact, right at the very end, I don't want to give any, anything away, and so we're in the spoiler-free zone here. Let me just say, folks, uh, and if Jeremy's listening again, I just want to <laughs> congratulate him, but uh you know, at the very end of the of the film, there are some references made to the idea of a broader, like a parent organization within the Pentagon around the so-called Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And lo and behold, uh, now that the film's out, we have learned about something along those lines. And so I won't say much more about that. I want people to go watch Jeremy's film. It's really, really good. Excellent documentary. But uh, but definitely, we're starting to see already some developments that were discussed in that film, which effectively, I think, anticipated some developments in relation to the Pentagon Group's uh, UFO inquiries, which <laughs> that's been a fascinating little subdivision of ufology in itself. It has been. And just so the listeners know, uh, on YouTube, you can get more of Micah's perspective. I've got a lot of great positive comments about your point of view also. Uh, in uh, on, our, on our, the Open Mind YouTube, I... What's one of the videos that I did is where, where we talked about, you know, how we all felt about that program and the effects of that program. And so you can go to YouTube and watch that video of us talking about that at the Devil's Tower. But my last question, because we're really out of time, so um, it'll have to be brief. But if you could make a comment, and you spoke to it just a minute ago, but it almost feels like, you know, I, I, I know you as well as I uh, look at kind of the impact of this phenomena on the public and you know with you larger other phenomena it's interesting and uh, i just would love a comment on how it seems this conversation uh, especially about ufos is becoming such a larger conversation and is actually right now i think influencing the larger culture more than i would have expected it to yeah, it certainly has. I have to say that, again, uh, public knowledge of uh, ongoing UFO inquiry by the Pentagon uh, has kind of reinvigorated the debate. Uh, I am an author. I've written books on this subject, but I'm equally wary, despite having colleagues and friends who have written excellent books that I enjoy reading. I'm wary of a kind of culture industry being built around a subject where it's just people writing books about this or that and going to conferences, giving talks and trying to sell those books. I mean, UFO research and I think that my good author friends would completely agree. They, they're very aware of this, too. You know, it needs more than that. It needs more than a culture industry. And so knowledge of a government program sponsored by taxpayer dollars, endorsed by senators 
and of course being undertaken and perhaps still underway right now in that capacity it removes the subject of ufos in the mind of the public from a culture industry and into an actual serious subject that our government has looked at and that is a very meaningful development in terms of recent ufo research right yes so we'll keep looking into the future but the time flew oh my gosh i can't it it's whenever it's an interesting conversation the time flies quicker than usual it feels like we've only been talking a couple minutes so we'll definitely have to get you on in the not distant future again to uh, discuss some more about this but thank you so much for being on the show of course people can go to graylianreport.com to read more about uh, your stuff but is there something else you would like to point people to to look at yeah, sure. I mean, people can check out uh, my website, micahanks.com, uh, and that has links to all my podcasts, which, again, the Seven Ages Audio Journal, Middle Theory, and Graylian Report. And uh, lastly, I just want to say it's always great to catch up and talk with you, Alejandro, although, like you said, the time goes faster than a speeding tic-tac. <laughs> it does. And they move pretty quickly, I hear. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you, sir. Thank you so much to Micah Hakes for joining us on the show again. He is awesome. He's such a great thinker. He's got such a great radio voice, too. It's always a lot of fun to talk at with Micah, and it's fun to hang out with him. He's really a funny guy. But uh, other news, uh, just so you know, you know, actually, uh, in just the last few minutes, Tom DeLong has actually replied to the To the Stars uh, funding issue that Martin and I were talking about at the beginning of the show. So go to the Open Minds UFO Facebook group, and you'll be able to see that. Or you could, of course, go to Tom DeLong's Facebook page, and you'll see his response also. Otherwise, be sure to check out UFO Seriously. That's the YouTube live news show that I do every Thursday at 6 p.m. Arizona time, which is currently aligned with Pacific. But we cover all the UFO news there, so you can check that out on YouTube, UFO Seriously Live. You can also check out my Patreon site, and please do. You'll see my space stories and and other stories there. And then uh, at UFOcongress.com, of course, you can read the latest about the UFO Congress, including going to the store where you could get cool UFO and alien products and the videos on demand where you can watch all the lectures. In fact, we have all the lectures up for the 2018 UFO Congress. You can go watch them at the videos on demand. Of course, you can find all of this also at openminds.tv, including the news that Martin and I were talking about at the top of the show in the upper right-hand corner. You'll also see a link to the video portal that I was just referring to, and you can join our email list to keep up to date on the latest. So thank you again to Micah Hanks for joining us. Thank you to his brother, Caleb Hanks, for the opening and close music that you hear and love every week. Thank you to Martin Willis of Podcast UFO for joining us with the news thank you to systematics for the bumper music and of course thank you the listeners for being here once again wonderful to see you oh by the way if you're in the baltimore area in november the 9th to the 11th i'll be speaking at alien con so you can also find out more about that just google alien con anyway i hope to see you there um i will talk to you again soon we'll talk to you on the show next week until then adios muchachos